So, Mark. Yes. Summer has ended. Okay. And this Thursday, the Toronto Film Festival starts, which really signals the beginning of the fall festival awards season. It's my favorite season. It's a great season. So, in that spirit, I was wondering, do you have any favorite awards acceptance speeches? So, one of my favorite awards acceptance speech moments is when I watched the Oscars in Singapore one year, Melissa Leo gave a well-known acceptance speech in which she said, F**k. But in Singapore, they don't have the seven-second delay. So, I heard someone actually say, F**k, during an acceptance speech during the Oscars, and it was incredible. Wow. Yeah, she comes on stage, and in the U.S. it was beeped out, but in Singapore it's just like, wow, this is f**k, oh no, and she like does the whole oops thing, and it was very shocking to me in high school. I mean, that would be shocking. I think it was for The Fighter. Yeah, Melissa Leah won Best Supporting Actress for The Fighter, I believe. Okay, my favorite one that I actually watch at least once a year since it's happened is Courtney B. Vance winning the Emmy for The People vs. OJ, which is just this incredible high-energy acceptance speech where he goes up onto the stage and shouts glory to God and then talks about how much he loves his wife and gives this really passionate speech. And as he is walking away, you can see him hoist the Emmy, and this is a bummer now, but he just shouts Obama out, Hillary in. Oh, Which is a bummer, but it is a great speech in the moment, where it's like that fall. Yeah. I also love Olivia Coleman giving her acceptance speech at the Oscars. Nothing is better than the ending of that speech. Yeah. I also just love how often she says, Lady Gaga. And just gestures at the audience. (laughs) And Glenn Close. It's just so genuine and pure, and I love her more than most anyone else in the acting world. She's great. The reason I brought this up this week is not just because we're into the fall movie season with Tiff on Thursday, but also because we're talking about Jerry Maguire and Cuba Gooding Jr. won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for this movie and gave a speech that is widely considered one of the all-time great Oscar acceptance speeches because it is a guy who's just really, really enthusiastic, which is especially fun because he won it for a role that is really enthusiastic and high energy. It matches, for sure. It does. So it's like, oh, we liked this performance and we're kind of getting more of it as he goes on really excitedly about how much he loves his wife and how much he loves everybody involved in the movie, shouting out Regina King and Tom Cruise, Cameron Crowe, James L. Brooks. It's just a really great high energy speech. Regina King is so good in this. She's so good in this movie. She's so good. It is astonishing that she didn't get an Oscar nomination at least for this movie. I know. The most emotions I had is when she was on the phone. And that's the brilliance of the performance is that she can make that so high stakes. But you also never doubt that she knows exactly what she's talking about. Like the first time we're introduced, she's in Jerry Maguire's office and she's like, I know about marketing. I know what we need to do here. Like, don't fast talk me. Just tell me what the plan is. She is such a powerful person, and I love it. Yeah, she's awesome. It's such a good performance. It is. But we will discuss this more, I'm assuming, once we get the show started. Indeed. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I am Mark. And I am gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is a podcast where we delve deep into the most important question facing our day. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even 
likable. It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and we will see what is there. It is our mission. It is our quest. We cannot stop. We may even make ill-advised life choices along the way to finding this, but eventually we'll get to where we need to be as our investigation takes us to one of the biggest movies of 1996, Cameron Crowe's sports agent romance dramedy, Jerry Maguire. This movie was very good, but... It's a weird idea for a movie. This movie rules. It is great. But I was just thinking about after I watched it, I just sat there being like, where did this movie come from? Well, I think it makes a lot of sense in the period in which it is released. That the 1990s is this moment where in the business world, we have a lot of high profile mergers, like making big deals is a significant part of the business landscape. In the sports landscape, we're seeing the superstar athlete in multiple avenues coming into existence. The biggest of those, of course, is Michael Jordan. This is the year that Space Jam comes out. Michael Jordan's on your Wheaties. He's on your underwear. He is omnipresent. Right. And all of that is driven by this agency culture that a lot of people aren't exposed to a lot. And so this is a movie where I think its impulse is dealing with the business of all of this and the superstar element of it does make a lot of sense. Okay. And there actually was some research that found a statistically significant increase in the number of people going into sports agency after this movie came out. So I guess, yeah, in the context of the time, but now when all of this doesn't feel new... Like, it's just kind of how sports exists, from what I understand. It was kind of just like, where's this coming from? Why is there a movie just about a guy writing a memo and then falling in love? (laughs) I mean, but that's, like, such a simple way to talk about this movie. I know, but, like, that is, like, the core of it that you spin out the ideas from, in a way, where I was just like, where does the idea of a sports manager having a, like, crisis of conscience come from just like that idea because i don't i I keep saying manager and it's agents which is even weirder because i'm so confused about the whole concept of this world but at the same time it just feels like how sports is but that's a thing that's really coming into being at this time so that makes sense in In a way it's reminiscent of broadcast news highlighting this change in an industry Right, so that makes sense. And this movie is produced by James L. Brooks, who wrote and directed Broadcast News. He does, like, industries in flux. Yeah, they make for good stories. Yeah. So, Brooks is reuniting with director Cameron Crowe. They had worked together on Say Anything a few years earlier. Brooks did not produce Crowe's next movie, Singles, but is back for Jerry Maguire. Remember when we saw him in a room, and all I could think about is how much money he has? Yeah. (laughs) James L. Brooks, not Cameron Crowe. Sure. I know very little about Cameron Crowe. I assume he has, I mean, he has had a number of very successful movies. This, as I said, was the ninth biggest film of 1996. He did buy a zoo. He bought a zoo. He said aloha. How much money did We Bought a Zoo make? It's either going to be, like, very little or way too much. It was like a Christmas Day release, I think. Yeah. Domestic total was $76,000. A million dollars. There we go. Holy cow. (laughs) Whoops. The best thing about We Bought a Zoo, a film I have not seen, is that around the time it was coming out, there was a Twitter account ostensibly by Matt Damon's character, not run by the film, just by like a rando, talking about all of the problems he was having with the zoo that he had bought. And it still exists, and it is quite funny. We Bought a Zoo is his highest grossing film. Gross? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Almost Famous was a flop. I knew that. Yeah, that movie did not make a ton of money. and Which is a shame, because Almost Famous rules. Aloha, also a flop. Elizabeth Town, also a flop. Well, Elizabeth Town is hot garbage. Yeah, 
But in, on Box Office Mojo's Cameron Crowe versus himself, number one is We Bought a Zoo. What did it make again? $76 million. Uh Jerry Maguire made 153 I guess, I don't know where this is coming from, because it doesn't include Jerry Maguire. Yeah, Jerry Maguire is the runaway leader of Cameron Crowe's career. And that's partially on the strength of Tom Cruise, who at the time is this unstoppable box office juggernaut. This is the same year as Mission Impossible. It's kind of peak Cruise in a way. After this, he starts to go off into weirder movies. He goes off and does Eyes Wide Shut. He has his Spielberg run where he does Minority Report and War of the Worlds. And then, of course, it's the War of the Worlds press tour when he jumps on the couch and things go from there. Scientology is weird, and I just feel like that has actually hindered him in some ways i absolutely think it has which is a shame i don't know how you feel i think you know i love tom cruise i think he is a great actor he's so captivating on screen in terms of the ability to just 100 percent lock in and completely sell yes. what's going on and that works so well in jerry Maguire because jerry Maguire is a salesman he's selling his clients to advertisers and he's selling himself to his clients and what i like about jerry Maguire is that It's a movie about a guy who starts off like as Tom Cruise at the top of his game, the best there is. And then he causes his own undoing. So he falls to the bottom and he has to pretend to be Tom Cruise in order to become Tom Cruise again. Right. And that's why I love this movie because like I'm a weird Tom Cruise fan and that I love Tom Cruise, but I don't really care for Top Gun because that's a movie where he's just like really cocky and has to learn to be cocky again. And I'm not really interested in that. I find him kind of obnoxious. But in a movie like Jerry Maguire, he realizes that like being cocky was bad and he can be the best while also being a good person. And in that way, this is kind of the dramedy version of Edge of Tomorrow. A great movie. That movie is amazing. I am so upset that movie didn't do well. The worst thing about that movie is that when it didn't do well, they then renamed it in the DVD marketing as Live, Die, Repeat. Who thought that was a better name? So that was the tagline from the movie. Like, that was on the poster. Yes. And then they made it the title in the home video release. And wrote, Edge of Tomorrow in teeny little letters. Yeah. Movie was so much better than I thought it that would be. That movie's so good. They are still working on making a sequel happen. Yeah. Tom Cruise is definitely someone who is best as a cocky man broken down. Yeah, and he does that so well in this movie, and that's what's so exciting about this performance. That's also Ethan Hunt in a lot of Mission Impossible movies, too. Especially the latter half of the franchise. Mm. The more recent stuff, especially, this is a series where they just keep breaking Ethan Hunt and then making him come back from it. And then they make that text in Fallout when Henry Cavill is like, yeah, his government keeps kicking him to the curb. He might want to overthrow them. Yeah, I do have trouble seeing Tom Cruise is not Ethan Hunt sometimes. Oh, yeah, he is my default there. Yeah. And it is worth noting, Cameron Crowe wrote this screenplay for Tom Cruise. His idea was like, I want to work with Tom Cruise. And he wrote a screenplay about a Tom Cruise kind of guy. Yeah, I don't see this working with anyone else. Especially not in 1996. No. So, Cruise does get an Oscar nomination for this movie, as does, of course, Cuba Gooding Jr., who wins. It gets a nomination for Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Editing. And what's weird about this movie at the Oscars is that this was a studio release. It was produced by Columbia. And 1996 is portrayed as like the year the indies came to the oscars because the other four best picture nominees are fargo the english patient shine and secrets and lies so jerry Maguire, this like sports drama romance comedy thing was the only studio picture nominated for best picture and today this would not be a studio film no not at all in no world 
And so it's weird that, like, Jerry Maguire is the juggernaut at that year's Oscars. Right. And then English Patient wins, and it's like, oh, this uh, Harvey Weinstein Miramax thing knows how to win awards. Ugh. That's my just gut reaction when I hear that name now. Yeah, that's a fair reaction. I have no idea what The English Patient is about. Like, I actually know. no idea. I genuinely don't know. It's a movie I never want to know what it's about either. I assume there's uh, a patient and they're English. Is it about a war? Is maybe it about, it's about something the, else? It, maybe it's about an English person who waits for something. Yeah, what if it's not even about a doctor? It's just someone who is very patient. I believe that. But Jerry Maguire, on the other hand, was, as we said, a huge hit. The biggest hit of Cameron Crowe's career, the ninth biggest film of 1996, a year that we can see the event film really coming into being. That year's led off by things like Independence Day, Twister, Mission Impossible. So Jerry Maguire is a cool, different kind of movie on that list. It goes on to become, this is a statistic that I love, the best-selling non-Disney VHS tape. Wow. That doesn't surprise me, though. No, because this movie is so rewatchable, and it has something for everyone. Yeah, this is definitely a movie where people would buy... Like, I remember seeing this on VHS tape Yeah, it had that reddish-pink cassette case. Yeah. And just the worst cover art of all time, just Tom Cruise's head from the side. Yeah, what a weird choice. Like, I don't know how I would design a poster for this movie, but I wouldn't have done it the way that they did. No. I did enjoy that in this movie that is named after the character, you get so many title drops. That's true. Anytime they say, hi, I'm Jerry Maguire, title drop. Well, that's the thing. I mean... A lot of movies, you don't have the first last name over and over again, but Jerry is the ultimate product in this movie. And he's constantly selling himself to everybody involved. He's selling himself to himself, trying to convince himself that he knows what he's doing, that he is as great as he needs to be. Selling himself to people in his personal life, in his business life, to the Kush, everybody involved. I mean, it takes the idea that we all do in some way have to sell ourselves and really just blows that up. But it works so well because it's in a world that's all about that. The agency business is all about selling yourself as an agent and selling your clients as well. And so I think it works really well to access that idea. We also get lots of product placement around the movie because that's a part of that world too. Like that devastating moment when Rod lands on his head in the end zone after having caught that touchdown and then it cuts to a Visa commercial. And it's this devastating thing that's also a reminder of like how gruesomely commercial the NFL is. That scene is so emotionally affecting. I have seen this movie before, and I was, like, sitting up with my hand over my mouth, like, what is going to happen? And, I mean, almost all of that is due to Regina King's performance. She is just selling every facial expression, every tear that comes out of her eye. I also cried. Like, it was so much to watch her truly just freaking out about this man that she clearly loves. It's just an incredible performance because she gets to do all the different things. There's so many sports movies where you just, like, have the wife who, like, worries about them going into a game. Like, the worst version of that is Elizabeth Banks in Invincible, the Mark Wahlberg Philadelphia Eagles movie. Okay. But Regina King in this movie, 10 years earlier, gets to be so much more than that. Where, like we said, she is this leader of her family and also a savvy businesswoman and also like deeply in love with Rod Tidwell. Like they have the cutest marriage. He almost didn't need Jerry because she could have just done it. Yeah. Like she easily has the skills to have made this a career for her sports agency. Yeah. She would be awesome. She should work with Jerry. Yeah. When Jerry walks in to Dorothy's office at the end of the movie and he like says hello a couple of times to try to get the attention of the room, and 
fairly softly just goes, I'm looking for my wife. I'm like, that's the coolest thing anyone's ever said. Like, the way he just brings that, like, very matter-of-fact, like, where is Dorothy? I need to see her right now. I'm looking for my wife. And I just start crying. I'm like, this is the best movie. That last scene is really what sold me. Like, his emotional feelings is really what made this, like a movie yeah to me the whole thing hinges on that yeah that scene and regina king on the phone are what elevate this from like a good movie to those are transcendent moments in movies and also like one of the most quotable movies of all time yes which i find funny because the you complete me line showed up much earlier than i expected yeah but then it pays off and then it pays off like i'd seen the like clip of him saying that it shows up earlier and i was just like Oh, yeah, that line's coming in this movie. I like that they set it up like that as just like a curiosity. Oh, those uh, deaf people are signing. I wonder what they were saying. And she's like, oh, you know, my, my aunt is hearing impaired. She said, you complete me. And it comes back and it's great. Yeah. And then show me the money. Show me the money. Course. You had me at hello, which is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I love this movie so much. The response to you completely. You had me at hello. That speech rules. Can we just play the audio of that speech and be done with the episode? Uh, I will say, you said he walks into Dorothy's office, and not house, and I was confused that I had missed a whole scene somehow. <laughs> I mean, like, this movie is- She doesn't have an office! So sprawling in the yeah. different things it's doing. Like, if you made this movie today at a studio, they would insist on making one of these plot lines the main one. Either mm. the agency plot line or the romance plot line with Dorothy. And instead, we have these two things that have about equal screen time- and, like, don't really totally tie together, except that at the end of the movie, Jerry has his success where Rod wins the game, and so that's going great for his business, and events surrounding that help push him back to Dorothy, but you just feel that today, this movie being pared down, one of those plot lines, probably the romance, would be given short shrift. Right. And you wouldn't have that emotional payoff in a way without the other story because rod and marcy are what truly inspire him right we need that comparison yeah you need that other successful relationship to make it work especially because we get these moments earlier in the movie where jerry is kind of mimicking that relationship there's the point where all four of them are out getting food when marcy goes into labor and rod and marcy are just like making out and so jerry starts kind of kissing dorothy and she's like this is cute but also you have the sense like this is a weird situation where he's just mirroring what he's seen going on yeah it's weird on both of their parts because i was kind of like rod and marcy what are you doing you are at a business dinner and then i was also just like jerry what are you doing you shouldn't just copy them this is so uncomfortable i mean that's the thing jerry's bad at intimacy but great at friendship right speaking of things that are done poorly in the movie we sunglasses. mentioned sure we got jerry's <laughs> sunglasses all of the sunglasses in this movie are garbage i was gonna say this is a movie that's all about selling yourself and selling an identity and selling a brand. And one of those brands that was involved in this movie, Reebok, provided one and a half million dollars in merchandise and advertising for this movie. We see that at moments where, like, Kush offers shoes to the hotel worker. He's like, what size are you? Oh, take some shoes. So Reebok provided all this money, all this merchandising, advertising. And the idea was there would be a positive portrayal of Reebok and a full Reebok ad in the body of the movie. Instead of that... <laughs> There is a scene in which Rod complains about having a Reebok sponsorship, ultimately saying repeatedly, F*** Reebok. So Reebok sued Columbia over this. They managed to get a settlement, and the TV version of Jerry Maguire included a scene about how great Reebok is. That's incredible. Can you imagine doing that? It's wild. The chutzpah of it all. That's James L. Brooks. Yeah. 
Should we start talking about the romance of this movie? We've got so much to talk about. I'm just going to keep raving about Tom Cruise throughout this movie. We also have not addressed one of our faves who is in this movie. We've said her character's name. We have not said hers. Guys, this is Wegtent. This is some premium grade A Wegtent. This is the performance quality I hope Renee Zellweger brings to Judy. I hope so. This is the performance that really puts her on the map in a big way. She had had some small roles in the past in Reality Bites and one of the Texas Chainsaw movies. And she did win an Indie Spirit Award a few years earlier for Love in a 45. But this is the movie that really puts her on the map. Then a couple years later, Bridget Jones seals the deal. And then fairly soon after that, it's like not too far until she's in Chicago. Right. Where she gets her Oscar, and that's, like, the big moment for her. It's within 10 years of this. Right. It all happens very fast for Renee Zellweger, in a way. And hopefully, she's got a long career ahead of her. Yeah. I'm excited. Ideally, uh, she brings us. <laughs> a performance closer to this than to What If? <laughs> Honestly, if season two of What If starts with her just in that hat watching the video and then cuts to something else, that's all I would need. That's the thing, is... Allegedly, What If is an anthology show that will follow totally different people, but the ending really seems to be promising us more Zellweger. I know. I really hope it's all anthology about Anne Montgomery. An anthology. Oh. <laughs> you missed the second N and E in the word anthology. You should uh, be calling up Netflix. <laughs> yes. That'll be $1 million Netflix for that idea. All right. So we are talking about the film Jerry Maguire from 1996. And we're talking about this romance between Jerry, played by Tom Cruise, and Dorothy Boyd, played by Renee Zellweger. So every week on We Love the Love, we break the romance that we're discussing down into five points that summarize it and let us dig in. So I am going to kick it right off with point number one. The prelationship. Right, because they're not dating yet. If anybody else wants to come with me, this moment will be the moment of something real and fun and inspiring in this God-forsaken business, and we will do it together. So... At the start of the movie, Jerry Maguire is not only not dating Dorothy, he's engaged to another woman. Their sex scene is so weird. I love it, though. It's, like, super weird because these are people who are performers, and they can't turn off the performance. What is her job again? So, Kelly Preston plays Avery Bishop, who also works in sports. My impression was that she is also a sports agent, but maybe she works for a different firm. Yes. She does something similar. So... Jerry and Avery are engaged, and they are in this very showy, performative relationship. She is, in addition to her work in sports, a hardcore mountain climber. And we hear, as he's explaining the story of his proposal to his seatmate on a plane, that they were climbing up a mountain, and his plan had been to propose on a mountain, but then along the way up, she called him a klutz, and he didn't really like it, and it made the mood weird, so he's like, well, now it's weird, I can't propose to her, like... The moment is wrong. But when they got back down, his assistant had planned a surprise engagement party. So he was just like, well, this is Mia Klutz asking you, the goddess of rock climbing, to marry me. And they have this very performative relationship. They show off each other, even when they're having sex, when they're alone with each other. They're pushing things to the limit to, like, show how into it they are. Right. Jerry Maguire, at this point, is a guy who cannot turn it off under any circumstances. No. But one of the things that happens at the beginning of this movie... And really our inciting incident is when Drake Bell doesn't like him. I can't believe that. 
Is that really Drake Bell? Yeah. I did not recognize him. So Jerry is an agent. He represents these players. And one of the players he represents is a guy who plays for the Chicago Blackhawks. And he gets a concussion in a game. He's hospitalized. And even there, having had several concussions in one season, he's like, I got to play if I start... 60% of my games, then I get a bonus. I got to get the bonus. And the hockey player's kid, played by Drake Bell, is asking Jerry, like, what's it going to take to stop him from doing this? And Jerry doesn't get it. He's still in this salesman mode because he can't turn it off. And he's like, nothing could stop your dad. It would take a tank to stop your dad. And the kid just goes like, fuck you. Like, my dad is going to get killed out there. And that throws Jerry into this tailspin where he writes a manifesto which he titles mission statement as he likes to call it right repeatedly and it's about how they need to refocus on serving players and not on making as much money as possible he literally says fewer clients less money which is a really radical thing to do and he starts to worry immediately that it was a bad idea but he like goes to kinko's has them printed up he's like really proud that the cover looks like the catcher in the rye yeah and he has it delivered to everyone at his firm it's called the things we think but do not say which is a great title yes it's a good title for what he does, but unsurprisingly, doesn't pan out well to tell a company to make less money. Yeah, Bob Sugar, played by Jay Moore, is forced to fire him, and he's like, yeah, what did you expect? You said less money! What were we supposed to do with this? So Jerry is now fighting for his life, he's gonna be leaving his job, but he's trying to get clients to go with him. He's like, my model will work. Personal service, personal attention, looking out for these players, protecting them. To make sure that more stuff doesn't happen like happened to Drake Bell's dad. And the only person that he's able to lock down is Rod Tidwell, played by Cuba Gooding Jr. This is him selling himself to Cuba Good- to Rod Tidwell is where you get the show me the money scene. Right. Cuba's saying like, I don't have to be your friend. You don't have to be in love with me. I just need you to show me the money. Right. And that's this great scene because it's a scene where there's multiple levels of stakes. Because Jerry's got to lock down Cuba because he needs clients. But also, Rod is dragging the conversation out, going on and on, like walking around his house, chatting about all the different people in his house. TP's room is flooding. What are you going to do about TP's room? And meanwhile, we can see the lights on Jerry's phone going out as people are no longer waiting to talk to him. And so there's the stakes of this individual call, but also of all the calls that Jerry's not able to make because of it. So by the end of the day, he has one client, Rod Tidwell. I don't really blame any of the other clients for not going with him. No, it doesn't really make sense to. And this also shows how weird Rod Tidwell is. He's a weird guy. Because he is just a very weird person. And one of the other things he makes Jerry yell that I was not expecting was, I love black people. <laughs> so, and this Which is, is a great one because that's one where you're like, is this the only time in his life that Tom Cruise has shouted that? <laughs> yeah. And- I mean, it's a weird thing to shout, but in an earlier scene, Sugar says the line, I'm Mr. Black People, and I'm just like, this is such a weird, weird series of words to keep happening. But it's a weird industry, and the movie calls it out, like, in that opening monologue by Jerry, which is so good. Like, there's a lot of voiceover that I don't enjoy, but in this one, it's great because, again, this is a movie about selling things, and Jerry is selling himself to the audience in that monologue. Right. And... He talks about, like, we're a group of, like, out-of-shape white guys representing the people at the top of athletic performance in the world, many of whom are people of color. It's a, another what-if moment where he says, out-of-shape, and then takes his shirt off and has full six-pack abs. Well, Tom Cruise has a weird chest. Yeah, but it's not like he's 
out of shape by any stretch of the imagination. But Jerry has this rough day, and he walks out, and he's like, I still believe in all the stuff that I wrote in that manifesto, and we're going to do great things, so come with me, and we can change this industry. And he's like, Wendy, to his assistant, and Wendy's like, I am very close to a pay increase, so no thank you. Good for Wendy. Way to stick up for yourself. Yeah. Way to make the right move. Jerry stands there. It gets increasingly awkward as no one agrees to come with him. He does take the fish. He does take the fish. And eventually, Dorothy. You know what I forgot to say? Something I found really interesting about this movie. This ties into his relationship with Kelly Preston. After their sex scene, they like have a snack and they stay naked. And it's the I love that. It's the only movie I've seen where they actually have the people stay naked, which is... Generally, probably more likely what you'd do if you lived alone. I love the two of them, like, hanging out naked, eating strawberries at the table. Right. It's an interesting thing to see also two, like, naked actors on the side. It's just a weird shot, too. But I thought it was really cool. Speaking of the relationship with Kelly Preston, when Jerry got engaged, his friends also throw him a surprise bachelor party that he knows about in advance and one of the things they've done is put together a video of all of his exes wishing him luck that was so weird it's a weird thing to do it was so weird and they all talk about like yeah congratulations jerry i'm really happy for you and they all say the same thing over and over again bad at intimacy great at friendship and he has to be with someone he cannot be alone and that kind of gives him his second dose of shell shock about where he is in life first we have drake bell being like what the heck man like What you're doing is hurting people. And then the second one, we have all of these exes, including Lucy Liu and Emily Proctor, who a few years later would play Ainsley Hayes on The West Wing. But back to where we were before our flashback, Jerry Maguire is leaving and he only has one person agree to go with him, which is a woman that he had run into at the airport one time and recognized. Well, Dorothy Boyd, played by Renee Zellweger, is a single mom. 26 years old. She's the oldest 26-year-old in the world. A line I really liked. This whole movie is quotable lines. Yeah, the oldest 26-year-old in the world is a great line about how tied down she feels because of her son. And the reverse is when Jerry talks about writing his manifesto, he says, I was 35, I had started my life. Right. Like, he recognized this is a turning point doing something that matters. So Dorothy was on the same flight as Jerry to a conference. She was sitting there with her son, Ray, played by Jonathan Lipnicki, the cutest kid on the planet. (laughs) He's so cute. What I love about him is he's actually five years old, and so he's got a weird body, like all small children. Yeah, he is a real small child. He, like, doesn't have precise movements at all. He looks like a like a bag of jello in like a cute kid way where you feel like their bones have not yet grown to fill out the rest of their body. Right. It... Is just kind of that weirdness that all humans are before they turn, like, seven. And he's got these giant glasses and his hair sticks up. He's so cute in this. He's great. He's constantly trying to one-up Jerry on things he knows. (laughs) Because they have the competition where they're competing with facts. Where he's like, did you know the human head weighs eight pounds? And Jerry's, like, throwing sports stats back at him. Do you think this kid even knows he's in a movie? (laughs) I don't know. So they're, like, competing to have facts. And finally Ray goes, do you know my neighbor has three rabbits? Jerry just laughs because this is a movie where people laugh at jokes. Yeah. People don't laugh at jokes in movies. Jerry's just like, you got me there. (laughs) I did not know. I did not know that one. So they're at the airport. Dorothy cannot find Ray. Jerry helps 
find him. And she's like, you probably don't know me, but like, I read your manifesto. And it was really inspiring. And he's like, I know exactly who you are. You're Dorothy Boyd. You sit right here. He's doing his Jerry Maguire job, never forgetting a person. Right. But she is clearly very taken by what he has written. One of the least believable parts of this movie is that a child would be on the belt that long without an airport staff yelling at him. It is pre-9-11, so airport security is much lower. I guess there's just fewer people around, but that's always been against the rules because it breaks the belt. Correct. So I was just like, how is no one... She's freaking out, and I'm just like, someone would have yelled at this child by now. But anyway, they have met before, and so as Jerry is standing in the office asking for someone to go with him, Dorothy stands up and announces that she will go. At which point... (laughs) The person who sits in the cubicle next to hers is like, what are you doing? Yeah. Everyone, including her sister, Bonnie Hunt, who is played Bonnie by Hunt Bonnie Hunt. Bonnie Hunt is so good in this movie. <laughs> She's so good. Bonnie Hunt, of course, is the Judy Greer of the 1990s. Right. Is not exactly on board with her choice. Yeah. Bonnie Hunt's great. The great character choice with Dorothy's sister is that she's openly like, I am incapable of telling you what you want to hear, but there is value in that. Right. And one thing I love about her is that she hosts a group for divorced women in her living room, apparently always. I assume it's like weekly or something. I know. It's just that every major scene happens to happen during one of these groups. So So that's apparently based on something that Cameron Crowe's mother was involved in. Really? Yeah. It's all about like, someone's like, I found my anger. Someone's like, good for you. It's a very, like, good group, and I feel good about them, but it was just like, they must be meeting constantly to be involved in every major decision in Dorothy's life. But it's cool that they have this supportive space for each other. Like, some of them talk about the fact that, like, I had had trouble relating to other women because society conditions us all to hate women. Yeah. Until I fell in with this group. Surprisingly poignant point for the 90s. Yeah. Cameron Crowe is good until he's bad. (laughs) Aloha. I mean, it's before that. It's Elizabethtown. Yeah. I just forget that movie exists. I spent too much of my life watching it to ever forget about it. More than one minute? Yes, I watched the whole film. That is something you decided, and I don't really understand why. It's because this and Say Anything and Almost Famous are so good, I felt like I had to try. Nope. I have no desire. So anyway, Jerry and Dorothy are going to be starting a new company. They're going to do big things, mostly represent Rod Tidwell. But Jerry has one other thing going for him, which is he represents the number one pick in the NFL draft. The kid who is expected to be the number one pick. The Kush. The Kush. A weird name for a child. Well, it's his last name. Well, his last name is like Cushman. Yeah, he's Frank Cushman, played by Jerry O'Connell. Yeah, it's just like, I feel like we all need to remember. They say he's like in high school. He's not a college football player yet, is he? No, he is. Okay. Because I guess I get got him confused with another, like, is he the same one? They run through so many kid athletes in the beginning of the movie. Yeah. I think I was getting him confused with one of the high school football players there. And I was very confused why this child was going into the NFL. I mean, if you go back far enough, that happens. Yeah. But Jerry does represent the Kush. He's trying to make it happen. And his fiance, Kelly Preston, offers really good advice where she's like, hey, you need to go talk to him in person make sure it's locked down and that'll also be your whole like personal connection thing that you're selling yourself on now she's like giving him good business advice being like don't be down on yourself take action so he goes to see the kush and his dad bo bridges they're so despicable yeah bo bridges is great in this performance though yes where he won't sign anything but his word is as strong as oak yeah right 
jerk. I knew he was lying. You don't not sign anything. That's not a weird cultural thing that I've ever come across. Nope, it is not. (laughs) But Jerry, in this moment, doesn't feel like he can push it because he's really counting on Kush. Like, Rod is fine, but Rod's not a star player. They actually say he's got an attitude problem, which sometimes can mean someone's not meshing with the team. Sometimes it can mean they're looking out for themselves too much. He's not connecting with the fans seems to be the big thing they talk about with him. Right. There's a lot of talk about how Rod seems to be there as an employee. Like he's there to collect a paycheck, do the basics of what he needs to do, but he's not a player that fans fall in love with. Right. He doesn't dance. Right. But there's actually a conversation where Rod name checks some of the most famous wide receivers of the 1990s, guys like Jerry Rice, and is like, these guys have all the endorsement deals. Why don't I? And Jerry's like, those guys put butts in seats. Those guys excite people. You got to do that. And so what Jerry really needs is the Kush, the number one NFL draft pick, presumably, who will get a nice big contract that Jerry will get a cut of. 4%, I believe. Something like that. So Jerry goes to the draft, and he brings Rod along with him to be like, look, you just seem like this employee on the field, but people like you when they meet you. So he makes Rod walk around on the convention floor, press hands with people, talk to some sponsors. They go on an ESPN show, building up that brand because Rod's contract is out at the end of the year, and he'd like to negotiate a new one before the season starts. Meanwhile, Kush and his dad betray Jerry, and without telling him, they sign a contract with Bob Sugar. So Jerry is now literally down to one client. Right. Why were they lying to Jerry at all? Well, it had just happened relatively recently. Remember, they signed the paper about an hour before Jerry got to his office. So they were, they were like, they were basically playing both of them to try to get the best offer possible. Right. Which is a scummy thing to do. Yes. They basically sent out two different agents to get him a deal. And Bob Sugar came back with a deal and they signed on it. Yeah. And then Jerry came back with a better deal. And at that point, it was too late. And they don't seem to be that sorry about it either, which. It's a despicable thing to do. Yeah, they're bad people. Kush looks embarrassed about it. Yeah, but I was surprised that the dad was so open about like, eh, I f***ed you over. Oh, There's well. what we do. It's a nice, quiet, like, real-life villainy performance. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that now takes us to point number two. Avery. No. It's over. Didn't hear it. There's something missing here, don't you think? You have never been alone. Listen to me. And you can't be alone. It's over. No one has ever dumped me. I'm not trying to make history here. After the draft, Jerry is in a bit of a doldrum because he has lost out on this really important client. He's left with Rod, who frankly is not an amazing client in that he doesn't make a ton of money and requires a lot of time. And he like goes to talk to Avery about it and she gets mad at him. She's like, what do you want me to do? Like tell you it's fine? It's obviously not. This is really bad for you. Right. And is very like, wow, you really messed this up. Well, she goes on about her thing is like, I promised you brutal honesty. And he's like, I don't remember the brutal part being in on the deal. Right. And he's like, you know what? This isn't working. We're done. Fair. He breaks up with her. And she tells him, no one's ever broken up with me. She punches him in the face repeatedly. I love his response. He's just, I'm not trying to make history here. This movie's perfect. It's got a perfect script. But so he's broken up with Avery and he goes straight back to Dorothy's house. Well, he and Rod fly back. They get drunk in the airport lounge. Right. And I guess he drives drunk, which... I think he takes a cab. Oh, he does. Because the cab is waiting outside the whole time, too, which I thought was funny. No, Dorothy calls him a cab. Oh, okay. She tells him that. But in the meantime, he has a nice chat with Ray. Ray asks him to go to the zoo. Yes. And when Dorothy comes back in, Jerry goes on a drunk rant, waving a poker from the fireplace around, talking about how he's a survivor. And then he realizes he's drunk. Yep. He sits down. 
And she tells him she just wants to be inspired. Like that manifesto. She is a lot. <laughs> she's great, though. She is great. And she's, like, giving a great performance. But also, she's a little naive. Oh, absolutely she is. But the oldest 26-year-old in the world comment is all about, like, I feel like I've been making the correct choice for so long. And this document made me believe I could do what I do but be part of something that mattered. And... I'm going to take what is perhaps an ill-advised chance on doing it. And Bonnie Hunt is there telling her over and over again, this is a bad idea, you shouldn't do this. Right. And the first question she asks Jerry when they get in the elevator after walking out of SMI is, are you going to have health care? Because like me and my kid. Right. And he says, yes. But what he means seems to be, no. (laughs) I think what he means is, I'll figure it out. I don't know. Yeah. He has clearly not thought this through at all. But he's like, we're going to be a a, a business. Of course we'll have health care. That's how businesses work. Well, yeah. Maybe back then. It's clear that Dorothy runs his entire operation, and he just interfaces with the clients. Yeah. She seems to be doing mm, all of the work. I mean, yeah, she's doing all of the, like, managing their business. She is the accountant. Right. I mean, her attitude in why she's doing this, it's like the Kevin Bacon line from Crazy, Stupid, Love Period, where he's like, I'm an accountant, and now I'm suddenly excited to go to work. Yeah, accountants don't have a lot of excitement in their lives if we've learned anything from television. That's true. So she tells him she wants to be inspired. He goes and tries to kiss her, which is bad. Yes. And the movie says it's bad. Because he says, I feel like Clarence Thomas. Which is funny in 1996. And and it's funny funny now. now. (laughs) And it's awkward at both times. And it's like, wow, Clarence Thomas. He was voted onto the Supreme Court. How are we still putting up with that? Oh, God. And they, like, double down on it. She's like, don't feel like Clarence Thomas. It's not that bad. Yeah. Basically, her point. And that takes us to point number three. But I was just about to tell you uh-huh. that I love him. I do. I love him. I love him. And I don't care what you think. I love him for the, for the man he wants to be. And I love him for the man that he almost is. I love him, Laurel. I love him. I love him. Hi, Jerry. The next day at work, he's apologizing again. She's like, don't. Just like, don't. And he goes, well, it's really important that we keep things professional. She's like, absolutely. I'm going to go home. That guarantees things will not be kept professional. (laughs) She's like, I'm going to go home. And he's like, unless we need to talk about business things over dinner. And she's like, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. I really want a movie where... It starts as what could be a workplace rom-com, and they're just like, we need to keep this professional. And then that's it. And then it just pivots into a workplace drama. Yeah, and then it just becomes a, like intense workplace drama. I mean, it must be out there, right? I don't know. Hollywood, call me. Is there like an industry that you think would be well-suited for that? I feel like a good one would be a hospital, because it's a situation where that should be the correct response. <laughs> so what you're looking for is like, Grey's Anatomy, but halfway through the first episode, they're like, nope, this is a bad idea. And it just becomes a medical drama? Yes. Okay. Just people making the smart decision. Or cops, and it just becomes a murder drama. Mmm. Now that's an interesting idea. So anyway, they are supposed to have a business dinner. Jerry goes over to Dorothy's house to pick her up, and she is, like, clearly preparing for this as, like, a pseudo-date situation, and... Naturally, then Bonnie Hunt is telling her, like, what are you doing? You can't be doing this. What the heck is happening to you? And also, like, like you don't get to be too stupid because you have a kid. Right. You can't be, like, 
all the way throwing things out. You got to maintain your foot in reality. There needs to be a certain amount of stability because you got to take care of Ray. He's a little dude. He's his, five. His neighbor has three rabbits. His neighbor does have three rabbits. Do you know that the human head weighs eight pounds? And Cruz shows up. Bonnie Hunt is like clearly not into him. And she tells him, you look exactly like I thought you would. Bonnie Hunt is so good in this. She's great. When they're leaving, she tells Dorothy, don't cry at the beginning of a date. Just cry at the end like I do. I feel like if this movie was made now, she would 100% be a lesbian. But it's more fun that she's like, I could be in this situation, but I'm not going to. Yeah. And we see Dorothy come in. She's wearing this nice black dress. That's more than a dress. That's Audrey Hepburn. And they go out to dinner at the Mexican restaurant. And a mariachi band is very insistent on playing for them. Yeah, music for the lovers. Music for the lovers. We're not lovers. This is this is a business meeting. Excuse it's me. It's like we're in Mr. an office. Mr. Mariachi Band later, sir. That band later plays at their wedding. <laughs> they do indeed. And they get to the porch and they're making out. It's a lot. Hot and heavy. Yeah. This is where he, I think, accidentally undoes her dress. Yeah. It's unclear. He's, like, making out, like, running his hands over her shoulders, kind of, like, snaps the straps, but they're tied behind her neck and it comes undone. Yeah, and then it's just, like, kissing her chest a little. And she is going back and forth about inviting him inside. Like, I think you should not come in or come in, depending on how you feel. And they go to the bone zone. Yeah, they do. And Chad, the babysitter, seeking to help out the... Au pair. The au pair. The he, child care technician. He pulls Jerry outside and is like, hey, you know, be good to her. Like, I want to give you something. Like, you're going to need this. And it's played like he's going to hand Jerry a condom. And Jerry's like, God, no, please. I do not want you to, like, hand me a condom here. I can be a responsible adult. And instead, Chad hands him jazz. I think it's Coltrane. And Miles, Miles Davis. Davis. He goes on about how... It's good old jazz from before the only American art form was destroyed by, like, a thousand, like, jazz room singers. Just killing it, sucking it dry. And then Jerry plays the music, and they're like, what is this music? It they is, bone. It's not music to bone to. No, it's, it's bad boning music. Do you think Chad tries to bone to that cassette every time? Oh, 100%. It's so funny when they're like, Chad, you know... Take care of Roy. Don't let him stay up too late. He's like, no, I'm going to educate him in jazz. And they're like, okay, Chad. Like, they clearly just hate this. Yeah. And so they bone it out. And they're having a great time. The next morning. The next morning. She is going on to Bonnie Hunt like, I know you don't approve of this, but like, I don't care. I'm so into this guy. I love him so much. He's great. And then Ray's like, hi, Jerry. Yeah. And Jerry overhears her saying, I love him repeatedly. And she loves him for the man he wants to be. Right. Like, she has no illusions about who he is. Because she sees how, frankly, like, pathetically low he is. There's the meeting with the Tidwells where she's like, he is broke. He has no money. But she believes in that mission statement. Right. She, she believes, believes in Jerry Maguire. Yeah. I would wear, like, a Dark Knight-style button that said, I believe in Jerry Maguire. You would. And no one would care. But I would care. <laughs> Send me buttons. <laughs> and so, then they kind of date for oh, wow. not that long. I don't know. It's hard to tell. This whole movie takes place over the course of about, I would guess, like nine or ten months. Because it starts a ways before the NFL draft, which is at the end of April. And goes until about the end of the season, which would be the end of December. Okay. The last game is a Christmas Day game. Okay. So we're watching like a nine or ten month movie. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> so within that time, uh, Jerry realizes the way for her to get health care is, you know... Let's get married. Well, there are a couple of pieces of that, to be fair. Yeah. So, for starters, he's chatting with Rod at one point, and 
Rod by this point has decided he's not going to accept a like really low contract offering. He's going to try to do really well this season and go into free agency at the end of the year. And Rod and Jerry are chatting and Jerry asks about like, do you know anything about single mothers? Rod's like, I was raised by a single mother and says like, you can't mess around there. Like you can't have a fling in this case. Like if you don't love her, you got to tell her. She needs to understand what's going on here. She's in love with you. You've got to be honest. Yeah. It would also be a bad idea to not make your intentions clear with your coworker. Right. <laughs> after having sex with them. Right. But Rod's like, especially with this single mother situation, you got to have yeah. to talk. Right. And around the same time, Dorothy is like, you don't have the money to pay for me as an employee. Yeah. And she's like, I have a job in San Diego that I can go take. Like, she decides she's going to go take it to the point that like... She gets a U-Haul and packs up. Is this job just, like, their standing offer? They talk about it before. I assume it's some kind of company that, like, generally has a need for accountants. Yeah. And maybe she knows somebody there so that she's sure she'll be able to get it. That makes sense. I was just like, how long are they holding this open spot for her? Yeah, I assume there's, like, some kind of relationship. Right. And they're leaving and they're saying goodbye. And Bonnie Hunt has given all this advice on, like, don't make it a big thing. Just be like, I'll see you when I see you. Like, you say you're going to come out next week. Awesome if that happens. And Dorothy does turn it into a big goodbye. She's like, if next week turns into next month or next year, just, like, don't forget about what you wrote and keep doing that. Because, like, that's a thing that, that I believe in. And that's really great. And as she's going, as you said, Jerry figures out how to make sure she can have what she needs. Which, eh, does that make sense? So, like, does he pay for private health care for himself? I was very confused. I guess they would save money by getting They'd a They'd be on one health care plan. Yeah. So they uh, they get married. It's been a few months. A couple of months. Yeah. But it's Jerry Maguire. Yeah. And they are very clear that, like, this is kind of a crazy thing that's happened. And Rod comments to him at the wedding. He's like, did you ever have that talk that I told you to have about your intentions? And Jerry's like, no. That's like, well, this is one alternative to that, I suppose. Just get married. That clears up the commitment thing. Does clear up the commitment thing. Yeah, so that takes us to point number four. Yeah, they are married. I don't like to give up. Please, Jerry. My need to make the best of things and your need to be responsible. If one of us doesn't say something about it now, we could lose... 10 years being polite let's just call this next road trip what it really is a nice long break they are married they have a nice wedding in the backyard the mariachi band from the mexican restaurant plays rod is there having a great time singing his songs jerry threatens to send the video to espn to make him seem more likable it would be good that would work and also at this wedding like they're having a good time bonnie hunt is warning jerry not to hurt dorothy in her very matter-of-fact bonnie hunt way she's just like if it happens i'll kill you like that's just how it goes but the movie starts skipping more and more through time yes. by this point. And Jerry is still going to all of Rod's games. Like, he's there pressing the flesh, talking to Cardinals management because Rod plays for Arizona, and trying to make sure that Rod gets a good contract and that he's also a player that fans can get excited about. And finally, after one of these games, Rod asks Jerry, like, why are you here? Why are you at this away game in Philadelphia? Like, this conversation we're having about my contract could be done over the phone. Why aren't you with your wife? And he has not been spending a lot of time with his wife and she's been noticing it yeah and he's been traveling basically chasing rod all over the country when he could be doing this over the phone right it's like 
it's good that he's going to some, but he definitely doesn't need to be going to all. Well, Jerry Maguire is bad at intimacy, yes. but great at friendship. Right. So I guess the idea is that dating is still kind of friendship and marriage is where it falls apart. Like or engagement. like very serious yeah. relationships. And Ron asks why he got married and Jerry's response is she was loyal. Right. And I can't turn my back on her now. And so it's like not in this moment about love, although there like is affection there. Yeah. But his big thing is just this really intense, she was loyal. And the next time we see Jerry and Dorothy together, Dorothy tells him like, look, we need to talk about this. Like, this was my fault because I knew what mental state you were in and I should probably not have let it get this far. And I love when she tells him, my need to make the best of things and your need to be responsible could lead to us losing 10 years just being polite. Yeah, and it's very sad. It's brutal. Because it is a perfect description of the two of them. Yeah. Uh, What a bummer. And then the worst of it is, at the very end, she's like, I've got this great guy, and he loves my kid. And he sure does like me a lot. Oof. Devastating. Devastating. Because Jerry and Ray get on great. Yeah, the whole Ray's time so he, cute. The whole time he has a great relationship with Ray. The human head weighs eight pounds! I love in the airport at the beginning when Ray just is like holding his mom's hand, but then just takes Jerry's hand as and they're talking swinging. and just swings himself because that's such a thing kids would do. And Dorothy's like, is this bothering you? He's like, no, whatever. I mean, it does seem to be bothering him at that time. It is. But Ray's so cute that you just let it slide. It was the best kid. And you know what else? What? He's got a great arm. <laughs> we are not there yet, okay. sir. So Dorothy is like, this next trip that you're going on, let's call it what it is. A really long break. And, like, they're not, like, done-done, but it's like, this is not a marriage that we're really going to be working at. Like, yeah. This is not a thing that worked, and it was probably a mistake. And that takes us to point number five, a Christmas Day game between the Arizona Cardinals and the Dallas Cowboys. Our little project, our company, had a very big night. A very, very big night. But it wasn't complete. It wasn't nearly close to being in the same vicinity as complete. Because I couldn't share it with you. This is a big game for the Cardinals because it's their chance to get the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Nailed it. You got those sports words. I know sports Mark, things. I want to take you to a football game sometime. I have been and I did not enjoy it. They're so fun. They're so boring for so long. They're great. I was like... I was like, why don't I have my Game Boy right now at times? Because it was just people doing nothing on the field for very extended periods of time, as they also had commercial breaks during live games these days. Well, take it a hockey game. I hate that sports games, like, you basically have commercial breaks during them now. Hockey and soccer don't really do that. Okay, because even at the congressional baseball game, they had commercial breaks. No, they didn't. Yeah, they had ads play on the screen. Like, one at a time, but it was still an ad. Those were between innings. Yeah, but it's still, like, I paid money to be here. I don't need to be advertised at with a full commercial. That break is going to exist either way. That's between innings. Yes, but bring back the dog jumping team. They did that, like, three times. I wanted more, William. So anyway, it's Christmas Day. It's between the Cowboys and the Cardinals. And that, of course, is a big game for Rod Tidwell, too, because since we're nearing the end of the regular season, his contract is up. So he's headed into free agency. He'd like to stay with the Cardinals. He's from Arizona. It's where his family lives. He but... went to University of Arizona. Right. He needs a contract one way or another. And one thing the movie calls out that I like is the fact that for a lot of athletes, especially athletes of color, 
in the big four leagues, the contracts that they have are covering the rest of their life because they've got a limited shelf life as a player. And a lot of these players are also supporting a lot of members of their family. Right. Like Rod's taking care of Regina King and also his kids, but also a large extended family. Like TP, you're, you're my brother. You're militant. And I don't hate you. I love you, man. And then there's the other brother that lost his leg. Who was himself a sports star. Right. Was it in the war? I wasn't sure. I can't remember. But like, there are a lot of stakes for this contract beyond just like, does Rod make four or five million dollars? It's what does that mean for his family and for himself when he can no longer play football? Right. This is what will pay for the rest of his life. And Rod has an incredible game. He's crushing it. He's making lots of great catches. And this is one of the moments where the filmmaking is so good because the sound effects every time Rod takes a hit are sickening. Yeah. When he gets tackled, when he crashes into somebody, the crunch is just a little bit elevated in terms of the sound effects. So we feel these stakes of like what an injury would mean here. Because that means no new contract. That means he is possibly suffering medical injuries for the rest of his life. We've got another Drake Bell situation. We've got Regina King telling her yeah. kid like, what does daddy always say? It looks worse on TV. This is another movie where I watch it and I'm just like, Ugh football has so many problems oh my gosh yes and i do not care for it this is one of those movies where i'm like this movie exactly gets my feelings of loving football and feeling very bad about loving football yeah because i think this movie is in that spot exactly right and rod ultimately there's less than two minutes left in the game cardinals are down by three rod leaps into the air he's doing a flip in the air catches the ball in the end zone is hit by the players while he's in the air and it flips him all the way and he lands like on, on his, his head. head like on his neck shoulder area like the worst area to yeah. land and he's not getting up and this is regina king's been great through the whole movie but like this is what should have been her oscar clip yeah this should have been in like every awards reel she's on the phone jerry gets down to the field and calls her up, and so they're talking, and he's like, just stay on the line with me, don't watch the TV. And there is, like, also the sickening element where they got Al Michaels, they got real sports commentators talking about it, and going like, wow, you know, you just uh, really hope that the family's not watching this. They cut to a Visa commercial, and it's like, this is national entertainment. It's Monday Night Football. But for this family, this is a horrifying moment. Because he is not waking up. And then he does. He does. He gets up and does a dance. And he does a dance. He does this incredible scooting around the field. He leaps up into the stands. One of the commentators is like, that's going to be a penalty. Because I don't know if you know this, in the NFL, they've excessive dialed it back dancing. now. It's excessive celebration. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. Because the fans don't care. The team's not going to care. The game's almost over. The game's almost over. And Rod has this moment. And like this is the moment that Jerry has been telling Rod he needs for the whole season. We've seen that building over the course of the season. We see graphics in the stadium in Rod We Trust. But this is the moment where he fully realizes what Jerry was talking about. And just like this whole movie is about selling, Rod realizes, like, I need to sell this moment. Right. After the game, Jerry sees the manager of the Cardinals, and he's like, you owe me a call about a contract. And the manager's like, I know, I know. Like, right. I realize I'm going to have to pay through the nose after tonight. Yes. But game's over. Rod's being interviewed, which he hasn't been after all these games. He's sat by while people interviewed all the other players, said things like, is there anybody else here worth talking to and not talk to Rod? Now yeah. everybody wants to talk to him. Rod pulls Jerry over, hugs him, thanks him. Troy Aikman, <laughs> famous quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, a real, oh yes. A real sports guy. Oh, yeah. Won three Super Bowls. Like, now is a sports commentator, turns to Bob Sugar, who represents him, and is like, why don't we have a relationship like that? And Bob Sugar goes, tries to hug him. It's so funny. It's so uncomfortable. Yeah. And 
Rod is just like, Jerry, like, we have gotten through this together. Like, thank you so much. And Jerry's phone rings, and he answers it excitedly and goes, Dorothy? Dorothy has no reason to call him. Not at all. It's Marcy calling to talk to Rod. And then Jerry leaves, and he goes to Dorothy's house. The divorced women's group is having a Christmas night meeting. Jerry walks in. He's like, hello. Hello. I'm looking for my wife. (laughs) And he gives the famous speech that probably everyone has at least heard of, if not watched. Even if they're not aware of having heard of it, they've heard this speech. Yeah. Because he gives a whole speech to Dorothy about what happened. This business that we've created had a very important night tonight. And he goes on about how it didn't mean anything without her. Because you complete me. You had me at hello. So good! Then we get the scene where we find out that the five-year-old can throw really far. Yeah, they're together again. And they go to the zoo at long last. And Ray's got a great arm. And Shelter from the Storm starts playing. Because this movie's got great music. And we go to the end. All right. So that's Jerry Maguire. This movie's perfect. Do you find the romance believable? Um, it's not our least believable. That's not our most. Right. That's my position. The line that sells me on it more than anything is Dorothy's line about her need to make the best of things and Jerry's need to be responsible. That, like, these people's particular neuroses lead them into what is on paper a very ill-advised relationship. Right. But at the same time, this movie takes place over the course of ten months. Yes. Which is quite fast. Yeah. I mean, Jerry is spiraling. Jerry is spiraling. Ever since he talks to Drake Bell... Yeah. Jerry's off the deep end. Yeah. But where would you rate it? Maybe like a like a five? Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Like five or six. Seems about right. Okay. Ah. So this is a question. I mean, we ask it every week. But I want to ask, do you think Jerry or Dorothy are dateable? But do you think this in the movie and also when they're not spiraling into <laughs> intense neuroses and chaos? Well, I don't want to date Jerry Maguire at the beginning of the movie at all. No. Because we've seen what he's like in a relationship, and it's he can never turn it off. Which does kind of seem like Tom Cruise, a guy who is always at 11. Right. But I want to believe at the end of the movie that Jerry Maguire gets to be a person that I would date. That's what we all hope. Yeah. But most of this movie happens when he is in an intense downward spiral. At which point I would say no. (laughs) Yeah. He makes rash decisions constantly. Yeah. Dorothy? hard to think it's of. really hard to say yeah it's hard to think of dating someone with a kid for one for me yeah i don't know that dorothy would be great for me yeah she is dateable like she could she have great dateable. relationships yeah um she's not dateable for me but she is dateable. right so do you think they would stay together i think they do i think the movie thinks they do if jerry goes back to how he was ever like, even slightly, I think Dorothy's the kind of person that would... Reel him in. Either reel him in, but also not hold truck with it if it gets out of hand. Yeah. So, I like to believe that Jerry Maguire stays as he is. I think it's a good relationship where Dorothy can restrain Jerry's worst impulses, and he can also sort of give her the courage to push beyond her just, like, need to make the best of things. Right. So I think they actually are a really good match in terms of personality. I hope they stay together. Yeah. If you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? Obviously, it's Marcy. Uh, Yeah. She's (laughs) great. There is no other answer. She is the best ever. Yes. She's amazing. So a weird amount of the movies we cover have been turned into some form of musical entertainment. Will, should Jerry Maguire be staged on Broadway? I think no, because I think this movie is perfect. I think no, because I don't think it would add anything. This movie's not made better with songs. No. It's just perfect. Yeah. I think that does it for Jerry Maguire. 
Yeah, I'm so glad that we talked about this. It's good to get some leg tent every once in a while. And until now, we had never talked about Tom Cruise. We haven't? No. Oh, And I, I like love him. Tom Cruise. He's great. Like, Scientology is deeply problematic. And Tom Cruise is very wrapped up in it. Yeah. But he is irresistible on screen. We're getting two more Mission Impossible movies. Only two? Well, they've confirmed two, both directed by Macquarie. Okay. Which I'm is excited. exciting. Yeah. And, you know... Not too long ago, the trailer for the new Top Gun movie came out, and I was watching that trailer, and I was like, I don't love Top Gun, but I'd love me some Tom Cruise. Now, Will, I need you to explain to me what movie we're covering next week. So, our third roommate, Josh, had recommended to us a 2003 Shakespeare adaptation starring LL Cool J. We will be watching the film Deliver Us from Eva, an adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew. I'm excited because I know literally zero about this movie. I just told you everything I know about this movie. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can always email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps other people to find the show. Reviews on iTunes especially are super duper. All right. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? Jerry write, Maguire, starring Tom Cruise. Write a detailed manifesto, mission statement, statement of purpose. Spread it far and wide. And eventually, someone who digs what you are saying will find their way to you. I guess just have a kid that might appeal to people more than you do. The human head weighs eight pounds. All right. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. It was in another lifetime, one of toil and blood. When blackness was a virtue, the road was full of mud. I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm.